0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Politics Podcast. We have a special presentation today with Nathan Brown, Professor of Political Science at George Washington University, author of the new book, Arguing Islam After the Revival of Arab Politics. Rather than a conversation today, we're going to present Nathan Brown's George Washington University book launch with Peter Mandeville of George Mason University and Jocelyn Cesari.
1: Okay, um, thank you very much, Hope, and thank you very much, uh, Mark, for some um, very kind introductions. Those are always my favorite parts when I'm the one who's speaking. Um, the, um, um, about a dozen years ago, I outlined a research project about changing natures of debates about Islam and politics, In the uh, Middle East, this was actually 2004, so it was 12 years ago. And then I went over to the Carnegie Endowment uh, for a couple years, Washington Think Tank. And they said, what do you want to work on? And I mentioned this project. And then I also said, or I could work on Islamist movements and Islamist political parties. And they said, why don't you do the second? Mm -hmm. So I was stuck with this proposal for the first, which was kind of abstract and really about a bunch of public policy debates um, that were interesting to me, but that weren't necessarily interesting, I think, outside of the narrow circles in which they were taking place. So I put the project just on the shelf. I finished up the, the project on Islamist political parties, um, and then I sat down with my friend Mark Lynch, um, and I said, so Mark, what do I do now? And he said, you should write a Nathan book. And those were his exact words. <laughs> And I nodded, as if I understood exactly what a Nathan book was. Having written books before, I thought, what were my other books? I mean, (laughs) they weren't Nathan books. Um, But I pretended to understand what he meant and then went away to think about it. What would a Nathan book be like? And in a sense, um, what I ultimately did was dust off that project that I had put on the shelf 12 years earlier. But it was a very different world that I was writing about. Well, actually, it wasn't a completely different world. That is, a, 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 a debate about, about religion and politics in, in the Arab world. There was not a total change, but there certainly was a very different political environment after 2011. But there was also an awful lot more interest in it outside of the Arab world. So it was, in that sense, it was clearly something Something that would, that might be of wider interest than when I had originally proposed it. On the other hand, it was certainly not a Nathan book in the sense that what I try to do in this book, I describe it as, in a sense, an extended essay. There is some research in the chapter on particular areas of public policy debate where I would had some familiarity over the world about how to write a constitution, about how to write a school curriculum, and how to teach in the schools, about personal status laws, about marriage, divorce, and inheritance. And so it wasn't hard for me to go into those areas and to try to understand how it was that people would make arguments and win and lose arguments to try to convince each other, or try to motivate their followers by referencing uh, things having to do with Islam, religion, morality, and especially Islamic law in, in, in those areas. I could go into those. But my pre, most of my previous work had really focused very much on institutions and processes, about writing laws, about, about, about uh, judicial systems, and, and that sort of thing. And so here it was that what I was doing was really talking about how people talk to each other. In that sense, it wasn't a Nathan book. It was something that was a kind of analysis that I was always interested in reading about, but, but had more difficulty um, Um, writing about. And so what I tried to do here in in the book is um, to draw on, again, not necessarily a very specific research project that had a beginning and an end. When I worked on judiciaries, I wrote a research proposal, I got some funding, I went off, I did the research, I wrote up some articles, I wrote up a book, and then I moved on. Um, but instead, what I did here was something a little bit different. I reflected on ways in which the, the kinds of arguments that I had been hearing and trying to make sense out of, really for my entire scholarly career since the 1980s, how the, 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 um, uh, the ways in which people would argue, um, the kind of arguments that they would make, the kind of ways that they would be managed and resolved or not resolved, had evolved over, in a sense, um, um, a, about a, a generation. So the, so the book is really about arguments about Islam and how they affect uh, public policy. And it turns out that this is, uh, sort of, methods of, of argumentation is something that attracts an awful lot of interest from political scientists. But it, they tend to be political scientists of a specific sort. An awful lot of them are really driven by very normative concerns about how it is that people who differ deeply should talk with each other. Um, one of the most influential names in the American academy in this realm is John Rawls in Europe, uh, uh, Jurgen Habermas. They have different kinds of, of, of approaches. But be- motivating both of them, I think, is is, is a desire to try to understand um, how it is that a, a, a fundamental values can be and should be argued in the public realm. And, of course, that's great, but the fact is most people don't follow their rules. Right. So... Um, and I begin actually the book by quoting Jürgen Habermas when he's actually pressed on this detail and he famously said, when, um, yes, I know that's true, look, I watch television, too, and when I watch an American presidential debate, I get sick to my stomach. So that's what real politics and that's what real political argumentation is about. A lot of it is actually kind of nauseating. And a lot of it is is rabble-rousing, um, sloganeering, bumper-sticker arguments, back and forth. But that's, in a sense, what I was interested in, how it was that, that, that religion got brought into those kinds of debates, some of which are nasty, some of which are polarizing. Um, um, and how it how it affected the, the public policy process and I won't um, I do want you to read the book um, um, you don't have to um, I, sh- I should mention in this regard just as a quick aside there's two particular people in this room who helped me write that I do want to briefly acknowledge one is Julie Romano who's sitting here in the front row who helped me actually understand who it was wh- which, which preachers it was that were worth following and um, and uh, Starling Carter over here, who um, helped me kind of polish the book, in particular, I remember one, one phrase that she said, um, she wrote in the margins, um, this was a two-cup-of-coffee paragraph. <laughs> so that paragraph has been polished in the version that you have in your hands if you actually have, it, have a copy, thanks, thanks, thanks to her work. So you only need one cup of coffee for that individual paragraph. If you add up all the paragraphs in the book, however, you'll be really on, nerves will be on the fritz by the time you finish. Um, um, so, 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 but, but, um, uh, what, 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 what they helped me to do was to take a look at at uh, the, the, these these uh, um, methods of argumentation, and I just want to make sort of two observations that are something that came, came that I came to understand or try and try to probe in the course of writing the book. One is that it's, you know, it's no secret that the Arab world is politically just a much more lively place than it was when I started studying it. People argue about politics more and they have all kinds of ways and places in which they can argue about uh, about about politics um, and about religion and about religion and the intersection between the two, religion and politics. That's no surprise. Um, but what really struck me was, you know... We have all these old media, we have all these new media, we have all these informal gatherings, and so on. What really struck me when I began to probe this was how much those various spheres in which political argument is is carried out actually intersect with each other. And what that means, um, and I'll make the argument in very abstract terms and then try to illustrate it very concretely, what that means often is that arguments and authority are detached because what happens is that somebody who has some kind of claim to expertise to a popular following or that sort of thing may make an argument to his followers this is the right Islamic answer to this question uh, but then loses control as his opponent as his followers may circulate it among themselves He may somebody might give a sermon but the sermon is then you know tweeted out uh, but it also gets it gets uh, gets in the hands of the adversaries and the critics as well and an awful lot of political argumentation in the Uh, 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 on religious issues actually is lampooning. It's making people or making arguments look ridiculous. And and I said I would would talk very abstractly. Authority and arguments get divorced. Let me give you a concrete example. In the debate about the Egyptian constitution in 2012, um, a very prominent Salafi uh, political leader Gave a talk to his followers in which he explained that the uh, Constitution was essentially a good start, that it gave tools for which, he said, you know. For, for which a, a much more Islamic legal system could be pursued. And what he meant to his followers, I think, was essentially, it's like, you read this Constitution, the Constitution was produced in 2012, and you don't see a lot of Islam kicking around, right? So you, you elected us, you we, we asked for your votes, saying that we would bring you an Islamic political order, you open up the 2012 Constitution, and you don't see much in it. Don't worry, because this is kind of where politics starts, and we have tools in here which we hope to use. Um, to kind of calm his followers, to basically tell his followers, this is a uh, this is this is a document that you won't recognize as Islamic, but please trust me and vote for it anyway. Um, well, of course, the, with the 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 YouTube video got um, or somebody uh, 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 taking a video, somebody posted it on YouTube, and very quickly it gets posted around. It's like. Here is a Trojan horse constitution. Here we have a Salafi political leader secretly telling his followers that there's all kinds of Islamic trapdoors in this document and that's every reason why you should vote against it. So the argument in a sense is still there, but it means something very, very different when taken into a a, a different political context. The second feature of of the intersection between religion and politics in in the Arab world that I kind of try to probe in the book also has to do with a disconnection, a disconnection between argument and policy. So one of the things I was interested in is, okay, people argue this all the time. What happens when people try actually to say, here's my interpretation of the correct personal status law, here is what I think school children should be taught, here are the provisions that I think should be in the Constitution regarding Islamic law. What happens when these arguments take place? Do they have any effect whatsoever? Is there any any relationship between the, uh, the incredibly vital public discussions and arguments and the policy outcomes. And the answer is not very much. Um, There is some, but not an awful lot. And in a sense, I think what is happening is that you have a revival of politics in the sense of people arguing with each other without a very uh, uh, um, much of a revival of politics in the sense which I've come to study it before, that is institutions and processes. These things are, you know, if you take a look, for instance, as I do, I have a chapter on, on the educational system and curriculum writing. People argue about what textbooks should say all the time. Ministry of education, ministries of Education are actually kind of almost hermetically sealed to tune out all of this debate. And what that means is that an awful lot of the argumentation that takes place is really about kind of mobilizing and, and your followers, but it's enormously frustrating for the followers and even for some of the leaders. The polarization that has set in, I think, is partly a result of that. There is no point at which, I should say there is no point, there are very few points at which the the kind of vital public argumentation actually changes from um, abstract argumentation about what should be done to concrete political processes that produce political outcomes. And so people remain very strongly in their own camps. The polarization that we see so deeply entrenched in the in the air world from that way is therefore not so much um, 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 I, I think it may not be so much the disease as a symptom. That is to say it's not so much um, um, uh, cause, but it is an effect very much of political systems that have opened themselves up to political debate, mm-hmm. but not given any kind of ways in which to, to or not not given very very healthy ways in which to translate political debate into political outcomes. Thank you.
2: Oh, good afternoon to, to all of you. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and, and really honored to have the chance to reflect a little bit on a book uh, by someone who, for my money, is really one of the most astute um, observers, commentators, analysts. Um, and with all that's implied in terms of critical perspective and methodological robustness, one one of the most astute scholars of contemporary Arab politics and the interface of Islam and politics in the Arab world in in somewhat counterintuitive and, I think, importantly unconventional ways. And so the, the, the first comment that I want to make about Nathan's new book is that I think it represents an important corrective to much of the contemporary work on Islam and politics. Why? It's, I think it's because this is not primarily a story about something called Islamism or people called Islamists. They're, they're certainly in there. They, they play their role. They come onto the stage from time to time. Um, but but that, 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 would be the, that would be the easy book to write about arguing Islam, and Nathan has already done a lot of that work, and his, I would commend the, the book he wrote on the topic just around the time that the momentous books of the, of the Arab uprisings were, 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 were happening. He's, he's done that stuff. Instead here, I think he's doing something much more interesting by writing about the interface of Islam and politics in a book that is primarily, whose protagonists are primarily Muslims, and the governments of Muslim-majority, but non-Islamic states, right? And that puts us, I think, on a rather different kind of terrain, and it opens up the possibility of understanding the interface of, of religion and politics and the role of Islam in politics in a very different way. Instead, Nathan opens by making the point that, in many regards, Islam, you know, as the dominant majoritarian religion in the Arab world um, is is simply almost, you know, woven into the grammar of Arab politics, but but he, he doesn't do this in a sort of crude neo-Orientalist way where he's somehow suggesting that because most Arabs are Muslims, you know, they have no categories outside of Islam with which to make sense of the world. He's, he's avoiding that entirely and he, I think, makes the very important point that the kind of argumentation that he's primarily concerned with in the book, particularly where states and governments get into the mix, um, is actually a fairly modern phenomenon, right? So this isn't a sort of story of how for centuries and centuries the whole concept of political discourse in the Arab world has been inescapably structured and and captured by the categories of theology. That's that's not what's going on in here at all. Um, Rather, as he's just told us, he, he wants to contend with this idea of um, Islam as one of the primary conduits, one of the primary vehicles of political argumentation. You know, after a career that's been primarily focused at looking at things like legal processes, constitutional politics, and things like this, people talking to and arguing with each other about differing conceptions of the good, and what should happen. In that sense, a much more classic or classical conception of politics um, that's at work here. And I think he, he makes, at the outset, and reinforced throughout, a couple of very interesting observations. Um, one, that much of the discussion about Islam uh, in contemporary Arab politics, in, in, in what he calls the Republic of Arguments, uh, throughout the book as a, as a sort of recurring trope to kind of capture the context in, in which he's writing, um, a lot of the time uh, recourse to and the sort of invocation of Islam in the course of these politics um, is, is a, a form of, of identity building and identity making where people position themselves and are trying to advance conceptions of, of who they are and who they are not. Um, uh, what sorts of political projects they want to be associated with and, and how, and I think an increasingly polarized um, political spectrum in the Arab world, um, whose side they're on, without necessarily telling us much about specific policy prescriptions or outcomes in the conventional domains of politics, as we understand it, that they are expecting to see or indeed are planning to even work on after putting forward their argumentation. And that, in a sense, I think gets to the second important point that that, that, that he puts out here, um, that, that to some extent, even though we see this um, consistent and fairly times intensive invocation and role of political argumentation linked to and derived from Islam, um, that doesn't necessarily translate into political outcomes that reflect the same kinds of um, uh, Islamic prescriptions, if, if you will. So in, in, in some, in terms of sort of capturing what this book does, um, I, I think it opens up in a sense and a new vista, an important one to think about Islam and politics, and in a moment I'll say a little bit about why I think this kind of work is important right now. Um, it, it's one that I think usefully kicks us out of a cycle of discussing these topics that that is, you know, has been primarily focused on understanding the changing forces of specific political actors who define themselves in terms of Islam and Islamists. Are the Islamists winning? Or are they losing? Why did they win? Why did they lose? What are the countervailing forces that are competing them? Are they being suppressed? Is their understanding of political Islam as a project evolving? Um, does, does the phrase of political Islam even mean anything anymore? These are all absolutely legitimate questions, and it's not to say Say that the scholars doing that kind of work are not offering us anything valuable. They absolutely are, and in a the sense, these are very relevant questions to be asking. But there are other domains of uh, Islam and politics that, that we need to be exploring. Um, and I think Nathan's work and the, um, uh, in some ways, the sort of levels of analysis that, that, that it plays across um, in terms of visiting and grounding itself in spaces where people, ordinary people, are engaging with each other and putting forward views and ideas and claims and counterclaims about what they want to see for themselves and for their children and for their families and for their country going forward. I mean, this, this is in a sense raw politics at its best. And so um, I'm, I'm thrilled uh, that that you know are uh, the usual cast of characters of Muslim Brotherhood type people are just not really the central component of the story. I think that's a really important move here. But when I sort of think about this work in relation to um, some of the ideas that I've been exploring in my own work, um, you know, I think that that Nathan helps to open up a space here that that is in some ways uh, driven by a, a similar set of questions that I've been trying to ask, um, although he does it in a different way. Um, and I think there actually may be more mileage in the space that he's opening up here uh, than in the what I fear to be already dead ends that I've been bumping into in my own work. And that's that's the, I, the question of the connection between a work like this and the kind of domain of argumentation in the traditional scholarship on political Islam that has been playing over the last decade with the concept of post-Islamism. This is the work of people like Olivier Roy and Asif Bayat, who have in some cases I think convincingly argued that conventional Islamist actors, as we know them, um, have essentially lost a monopoly on their ability to articulate, uh, or to be the the sole articulators of a social and political vision grounded in and inspired by (coughs) Islam. They just don't have that capacity anymore, Um, in part because they bumped into the limitations of any modern ideological project that that is articulated as an ism of some sort, um, uh, that that I think, you know, was a was a feature of politics of the late 20th century. The limitations of those kinds of projects of all sorts um, began to, to become clear. But I think also, and this is where it kind of, where we begin to kind of s- um, share some terrain in terms of the kinds of questions that Nathan and I are asking in our respective work, is, you know, also what happens when traditional structures of authority with respect to Islam, be that um, you know, conventionally, classically trained Islamic scholars, the ulama, um, or the movements in the realm of society and politics, Islamists, that have previously been the authorized um, generators of a politics based on Islam. What, what happens when, when um, uh, we see increased fragmentation in that terrain? Um, when the ability of those kinds of actors to claim authority or to claim a monovocal, uh, a, a sort of univocal ability to pronounce upon the Islamic meaning of a given line of argumentation or an event or a phenomenon. Uh, what happens when that when that d- d- disappears? And, you know, n- Nathan's example of the Sal- Salafi Sheikh who, um, you know, Put out the short video explaining why, you know, look, people, you're going to open up this constitution. You're not going to see at first glance a lot of Islam, but don't worry, don't worry. This is a this is a great basis from which to work from, and we've, you know, we we you know we we can move forward with this. Please endorse, um, and how that when it falls into the hands of others, um, you know, turns into, mutates into any number of other kinds of narratives, um. And, 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 and stories. So I, I think then, you know, n- n- although Nathan's work is not primarily asking us questions about something called Islamism, most of the time he's usefully avoiding taking us into that tricky terrain, um, I, I think one can't help but ask not just a set of questions about arguing Islam after the revival of Arab politics because he is talking about what's going on in a particular period of time where Arab politics has, I think, been reconfigured in very important ways. Um, But I, I think there there is important questions to be asked about the question of what it means to argue Islam after Islamism, if indeed we are in a time when not only have the kind of ideological limitations of the Islamist project seemed to have been laid bare, uh, not only are we living in a time when in many countries the groups known as Islamists have either been dismantled, proscribed, cracked down upon, oppressed, driven underground, jailed, or so thoroughly domesticated that it's difficult to recognize in their politics anything that one would conventionally call Islamist, if you're familiar with the standard repertoire of Islamist argumentation um, and, and prescription. Um, you know, what does it mean to engage Islam in Arab politics after that time? The the the, the other thing that I, I just want to, to hold out is the, the fact that there are other spaces where we can explore the question of what it means to argue Islam and this is what I've been trying to do also in the book that I've been delayed writing for about 10 years uh, due to various stints in government in the Obama administration and so I'm also kind of looking forward to writing my Peter book um, some, <laughs> some, sometime soon, um, which is to kind of say look yeah the, the Islamists don't really seem to be where it's at Um, But that doesn't mean that the idea of Islam as a form of social movement has kind of run out of gas. There are still plenty of people, and frankly plenty of young people, who um, are drawn to the idea of um, embodying their religious commitments in the ways in which they engage and dwell within society. Um, They may not kind of call it Islamism, um, but it is, in a sense, an effort to kind of find a social manifestation of a set of value or ideational commitments. Um, but I think for the vast majority of them, something like joining the Muslim Brotherhood just seems so something your grandfather would do.
0: Um,
2: uh, and and it's, it's much more interesting to engage an Islamic, not Islamist, but Islamic project in domains that we don't necessarily conventionally associate with politics um, of the conventional sorts of, you know, formal political realms that involve elections and lawmaking and policy deliberations, but the idea that in spaces uh, like leisure time, education, self-education, the consumption of media, shopping, so one's engagement with the economy and political economy, all become spaces in which in various ways one can embody um, a commitment to a particular project. So, you know, is, is there some connection between the, re- rel- the, the relative absence of Islamic prescriptions and outcomes in the conventional realm of politics that Nathan picks up on in this book and something akin to a displacement of Islamic politics into other sectors and domains of life that allow for a sense of being Islamic without having to be an Islamist. I think I'll leave it
3: at that. Good afternoon. Um, I'm very pleased and um, honored to comment on this book. Um, my encounter with Nathan's work came when I was working on my own book a couple of years ago and I was looking for insightful description of state-Islam interaction and, and I read the Nathan's research on that and it was kind of very relevant to, to the work I wanted to uh, do in, in, this, in this book that was published two, two years ago. And since then, we, we have been, um, I would say, in intellectual exchange. And um, I, am, uh, I, I enjoyed reading the book. I know it's what everybody has to say when you comment a book, but okay. it was really uh, enjoyable to read in the sense that the style, and it was mentioned in some of the comments, Is uh, for me, it reminded me um, the way that European novelists indeed used to travel to the Middle East and bring back uh, not only impressions but also very sharp insights on what was happening in these societies. The difference is that uh, Nathan is not an Orientalist and that he knows these society from within and it's something that uh, you capture only in reading it. It's hard to... Uh, tell you more than that. You you have to read that to see yourself in some of the situations he's describing. Um, I am also very um, happy with the orientation of the book in terms of focusing a lot on ethnography and historiography, which is something that uh, is unusual in the American political science circles. And by doing so, indeed, uh, there is a double challenge. Because when you look at Islam and political spheres, or public spheres, you immediately come or fall into the crack of two major disciplinary uh, fields. One is indeed the one you mentioned, which is political philosophy and the normative approach of it. Uh, which doesn't leave very much room for what people are doing or changing or transforming with some of these ideas. The other one that you didn't mention in your introduction but that is in the book is also the Islamic studies uh, field that has another normative take which is to say that, you know, uh, if you look closely at some of the theological discussions since medieval time, you're not going to find a lots of positive argument in favor of a modern state. And, and the, the, the importance of the book is to stay away <laughs> from both of these dead ends. Um, so it starts with what I call the riddle that has been intriguing a lot of our colleagues which is how come you see so much vibrancy in Muslim society when you talk to people, and you, you give lots of examples of that, you see that people are shrewd, they have opinions, they know exactly what's going on, and you turn to the institutional system and you see an, um, a sort of edifice of laws and control and administrations that doesn't change very much or doesn't reflect the shrewdness of the citizens. So that's the riddle that you, the book takes on. And what is interesting here is that um, you, you show the spectrum of the different spaces, or I would say circles. You prefer the term of spheres, and you have all this cosmic <laughs> uh, metaphor that I like very much. Uh, and um, you show the different places where debates are happening, the clubs. Uh, you, you talk a lot about, uh, I would say, you talk about the social media, but I, I was looking for more here. But I think this is a potential new uh, sphere that is also changing all the other ones, but also the, the institutional uh, system. Um, and these, these different spheres, as you say, intersect and are porous to each other. Um, I would like to, to say a few things, and I'm not going to follow the order of, of, of the book, but more about my own take on some of the content or part of the content. First, what is debated? And this is an interesting question because you can go two ways. You can ask, uh, how is religion debated? And it's a question you ask. But the other question that comes the most, actually, is how is religion relevant as a dimension of political debate? And it's a different question. And the two are very much mingled in the reality of people in Muslim societies. First and foremost, if you talk about Islam or arguing about Islam, you will think from a Western point of view that the question is about the belief. And as the book shows, it's not about the belief. Muslims in uh, Muslim-majority societies, and actually having worked a lot also in Muslim minorities, it's also the case there. It's not about believing. It's about behaving. It's about what kind of behavior do I adopt in my interaction with others. In other words, uh, what's called the transcendent is not very much a cause of debate or controversy. What is at stake is what do I do. And not only myself with God, but with the others. And most of the questions are about the others. And that interaction with others is a gender-related authority-related, socially-oriented as well. And that's, I think, um, where the distinction between the public and the private dissolves, but also the distinction between what is religion and what is politics. And that's where, with our model in in political science, we are not equipped yet to deal with this this dissolution. You know, that's why we keep... Isolating variables about what is religion and what is politics that is challenged every day by the way that people deal with it. And, you know, it's, it's a case in Muslim societies, my intrusion or my exploration in other Uh, cultural and religious areas tell me it's the same thing everywhere. But then the question is what kind of model, what kind of theory do we use to understand this reality? And I I think it's a big challenge for the discipline Um, um, because we are not um, accustomed to this... uh, I would say, continuous process. We have a, a variable-centered approach, while what is at stake and what Nathan described is process, and it's a very different approach. Um, then, the question is also about who is engaged in this public space, arguing about religion. Um, and here, the. Um, the, the main takeaway of the of the book is indeed it's not professional of Islamic politics. It's everybody. Not it's not people who belong indeed to the Islamists, and that's why the term doesn't come, because it is not really relevant. They, it, it will come if some of these actors are belonging to this movement, but the. Uh, protagonist involved in the site or the field of discussion is much much broader than that and it's not only people motivated by I would say piety it's also what you would call secular people, the people who are not I would say (coughs) particularly uh, motivated or what you call pillars of mosque you know everybody is involved in this debate at different levels, different capacities. Um, and here again it, it, it breaks down this idea of Islamism as a professional of poly, as prof, Islamist as professional of politics. And I, I would say that uh, this is not new. We have not paid attention enough so unlike Peter I am not sure that post-islamism, is the right term for that because a lot of the narration of marathon uh, go back. It's not post-Islamist. Some of it goes back to the 80s, 90s. It's been something that has been at the core of the public space in Muslim societies since their inception. The problem is we don't always have the right lenses to look at it. Um, And especially in political science, we tend to look at institutions, much less at people, you know. So um, then if you look at people, you see it there. Uh, But at the same time, not everybody is equal coming to this space. And this is something that flies in the face of the normative political philosophy like John Rawls. John Rawls thinks of an ideal public space where everybody comes in and argue with a gentleman agreement of the overlapping consensus. What your book shows is actually some are more equal than others. So that's why also you see the limit of of normative political philosophy. A plus B plus C doesn't make the public space in any society, but especially not in Muslim societies. And um, And here comes a central actor that you keep for the end, which which is the state. At the end, who is coming as a regulator? We say uh, in my original language, grand grand ordinateur, the one that's the state. And again, this flies into the face of all what we know about religion and politics. We always look at the states, even in Muslim countries, as a a neutral agent. The state has never been neutral. It's never been secular in the Western American, especially American sense. The state has its hand more than its hand. It has been that's what where our work here Convert, it has been the major organizer of this public space where religion is involved, or, or is a segment of it. And, um, and there are three domains where, where the, the debate is, uh, is still going on, but where the states take indeed major initiative to provide laws, regulation, uh, institu- institution and its education, its civil law, uh, and it's also all the work on the Constitution. And in this sense, what is very interesting also, it comes a few times in your book, is the consensus that emerged. Everybody would agree, and you say it several times, that the secular and the Islamist alike, they never really contest the centrality of the role of the state because it's something that has been absorbed. I would say uh, p- part of the socialization of citizens is that the state is a central agent and a central act in regulating the public space in its moral dimension. Again, something that if you look with your tools in Western political science, you may not be clearly aware of. It is not simply organizing it for giving everybody the capacity to talk. It's also maintaining the role of Islam as as part of the regulator parameters of the public space. And in this sense I like very much all your digression on Islamic Sharia. Indeed it sounds like a little, you know, oxymoron. What is this, Islamic Sharia? but that's exactly what it is. You need to add Islamic to Sharia, because otherwise it refers to sets of laws, positive laws, that are all part of the edifice of the state, and that are, all, that are shared by all groups, even groups who are not Muslim, that will refer to the personal civil law in these terms. So this is what the state has accomplished, not the Islamic tradition. It is not because of Islam. It is because the state, since its inception, has posited itself as this major, major agent of regulation. Um, but the beauty of the book is that it's not about the state as such. It's about the, the, the results and the continuous evolution of these different spheres of um, public space or public arguments. All
0: right. Thank you for those, um, for those outstanding uh, comments. And uh, I'm just, I have a, uh, just three very, very brief comments to make about the book, and then we'll open it up to uh, discussion from the audience. Um, but just to say, uh, in response to Nathan's opening uh, anecdote, that um, I did indeed uh, tell, tell him that he should write a Nathan Brown book, um, and, and, and he did, and that's what makes it such a good book. Um, and because uh, at the, t- the the context of this was that he had a number of um, of interesting ideas to do a more traditional conventional political science book, and he was getting extremely I would say stressed to the extent that you can tell when Nathan is stressed by questions of research design, specification of variables, and all the things we torture our graduate students with, and that's the point at which I said, "You're Nathan Brown. Write a Nathan Brown book," and um, and I think that that was good advice. Um, And so I have three basic comments uh, about the book because this really is a tour de force. It's it's extremely thought-provoking and it really does just raise an enormous number of questions about what is the stuff of Arab politics and Arab political life today and Muslim political life today. And I think that uh, people are going to have to grapple as our two discussants did uh, with a very large and wide range of of issues that he raises. Um, And so I'm going to uh, just highlight that, that, that intersected with work that I've done myself. The first is that I think that this is probably the best uh, uh, use of Habermas and the theory of the public sphere that I've seen uh, in people doing research on the Middle East. It's, uh, it's both theoretically sophisticated, but also written in such a way that it, it is able to do away with a lot of the um, a lot of the jargon and the accretion of, um, of, of of discourse and scholarship around Habermas's concept and pairs it down to, I think, a very useful and, again, very insightful way of understanding what the public sphere is within politics. Um, It's both sophisticated and useful. Um, I I think that that concept of publicity and the concept of the public sphere and its relationship with the political sphere is one area where the book engages in multiple directions, as as both Jocelyn and Peter noted, um, and could push even further in terms of understanding this as a weak public sphere, and the extent to which the the linkages and the connections um, between public sphere arguments and state policy and policy outcomes to the extent to which those are shuttered or where they're broken, um, this is where Habermas and many Habermasians most expect to see pathologies emerging in the political space. And this was a core part of uh, both Habermas's own work um, in in his later uh, Between Facts and Norms, that that, that era of his work, but also came out, I think, very much in in the attempt to recapture the critical part of the critical theory of Habermas, in the sense not simply a description of the existence of these alternative spaces for discourse, but also the critical dimension being where the possibility for emancipatory change comes from in the intersection between public argument and state policy. My sense is that despite uh, Nathan's best efforts to dissociate his book from the Arab uprisings and their aftermath, I think that it's impossible to do so because this was a moment, a transitory moment, when those floodgates appeared to open, however briefly in which public argument mattered, not just to the people, the communities, the individuals, but to state policy. And since 2013, approximately, those gates have been closed again quite forcefully. And so I think that we're going to have to think about what it means to have a weak public sphere with a very recent memory of being strong and then killed. And um, I think that is going to very much shape uh, the next Nathan Brown book. the second, um, the, the, the second broad comment that I had is that I think that uh, Nathan does an outstanding job of identifying multiple public spheres and the intersections between them, the clashing of the orbs or the spheres or the various um, images that, that he gives us in the book. Um, and implicit in much of his narrative, I think, is an uh, an argument or an assumption uh, that these spheres are becoming more porous, that in a sense that they're intersecting more. And, uh, and and this is, I think, very much the narrative that I would have believed up until relatively recently. But I wonder to the, the extent to which some of the pathologies that I think we have come to recognize in socially mediated public spheres might begin pushing against uh, the optimism, which I think is very much inherent in, uh, in In the narrative Uh, to the extent that socially mediated publics tend to move (laughs) tend to move towards um, uh, uh, these uh, clusters of the like-minded which talk to each other less and where argument comes to resemble just you know mortars being you know lobbed across the dividing lines Uh, The the fear is that the kinds of argument which we celebrate in a public sphere context could actually become something which pushes towards the extremes as people argue only with each other, argue in the good Habermasian sense, but fight uh, with their rivals. And so in a sense, many of the the trends and the forces which which Nathan's book uh, very powerfully brings forward I wonder if they're already uh, being overtaken by some of the, path- the pathologies that might be inherent in this. Now Habermas himself, uh, people forget that the structural transformation of the public sphere was in many ways a negative book. This was a tragic story, one in which as the public sphere becomes important, it is immediately, or not immediately, but over time, it is captured by those who oppose that sort of free public reason, specifically commercialization, as it's captured by capitalism and by the state, which, um, once it recognizes the threat, moves to put it under control. And I think that um, the, the, the tragic nature of, uh, of public sphere theory is one which uh, we certainly don't want to succumb to, but I think uh, need we need to balance the optimism and the pessimism and keep that, uh, that, that uh, narrative alive. The last point that I want to mention and then open it up is that, uh, again, one of Nathan's uh, real contributions is to show uh, in very rich detail uh, the the arguments and the debates which actually take place and also the intersection of different types of debates. Um, Early on in the book, I jotted it down. I think it was page 56. Um, he has a little anecdote on which I'd like to expand, and that is, it's when he begins to discuss um, the reactions by Islamists to his own writing when he for the Carnegie Endowment. And I actually think he could do even more with this, and I would love to see an extension and a building upon this because our interventions in these debates shape those debates. Our interpretations as Western scholars. Of the debates inside the Islamic world manifestly um, influence their own internal arguments. And here I'll cite uh, the, the really extraordinarily influential report authored by Amar Hanzawi, Michelle Dunn, and Nathan on the gray zones in Islamist uh, political discourse, in which he's, he argued after a close reading of what Islamists were saying about politics, he then identified a series of gray zones, things like attitudes towards minorities, towards religious freedom, towards women, a whole range of things which Islamist political uh, thinking or political discourse had remained um, at at best um, ambivalent or agnostic in ways that made it impossible for those who feared them to be reassured and in I think the way many of us think about scholarship that would be the end of it it was a good article but that's not what happened instead this was read widely by Islamists in the Islamic world uh, and and then resulted in a series of responses. I remember of the al Fathuh from Egypt. I remember a number of them were published by Carnegie as responses, but others simply circulated in Egyptian media, in on Al Jazeera, and it actually triggered this exactly the kind of discourse which Nathan describes in his book. And I find this fascinating and really raises important questions about ourselves as writers, the ethics of our own engagement with um, the arguments which he describes. So thank you, Nathan, for this excellent book, and Peter and Jocelyn for your contributions to this discussion. Um, And um, thank you all.